Thank you, worship team, for the um, great reminder of uh, what we have to look forward to when we stand uh, face-to-face with God. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I remember when I was in uh, college, uh, my sophomore year of college, I had um, a class called Doctrines One. Um, and those of you that went to Bible college, you suddenly understand what I'm saying. Uh, we oftentimes loved those classes and dreaded those classes at the same time. And Doctrines One was the doctrine of theology. And, and I remember the very first day of class, our teacher came in and he said, uh, I, this is what I want you to do, take out a piece of paper. I, I test right away, first day. But what he said was, I want you to take out a piece of paper and I want you to list all the facts you know about God. Everything you can think of about God. Write it down. So we all quickly started writing things down, and you're going really well for a while, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, I'm kind of, oh yeah, I thought of that, and you write a few more down, and you go, and finally got to the point where you say, I don't think I can write anymore. And he said, count it up. And I remember counting it up, and I mean, I, I was in Bible college, grew up in uh, Christian school, I, I, you know, and I counted up and I had, I had 78. I thought, well, that's pretty good. And then he gets up and he says, I want you to understand that it is estimated that there are approximately 900 different variants of the names of God. Wow. <laughs> I have a long way to go. I don't know if I could still list, I, I don't know if today I could list all 900 as well, but uh, how much, my question for you is, how much do you know about God? I want to uh, ask you that because how much you know about God determines what you think about Him. But actually, that's not necessarily my topic, although we'll get into that. I want to specifically ask you this question Have you ever wondered how much God thinks about you? Because our greatest barrier, and listen carefully to this sentence because it's going to sound confusing. Our greatest barrier to knowing God better may be how little we know about what God thinks about us. Now let me repeat that because I said it's confusing. Our greatest barrier to knowing God better may be how little we know about what God thinks about us. We struggle with God because we feel so bad about ourselves at times. And if you're here today, you've been there at some point where you feel bad about yourself. We struggle because uh, we know the truth about ourselves and, and, and we know who we are. But think about how much more God knows about you. Sometimes we don't want to pray or we don't want to read our Bible because we look in the mirror and we see our sin and we think, how can we do that? We think, I'm such a disappointment to God. Or I heard someone just this week, I was talking to someone and they said this. They said, I can't read the Bible because I'm such a hypocrite. We've been there. You've all been there at times when we begin to look at ourselves and what we see is this this horrible person and this sinful person. And, And so the question comes is, what does God think about you. Maybe you've had a hard week. Maybe you've had a bad month. Maybe you're in the middle of what seems like a wasted year spiritually. I heard a quote one time that I thought was interesting. It says this, I think we run from God rather than running to Him because we know our hearts all too well and we know His barely at all. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time here telling you how wicked you are. 
I think if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that we're a sinner, and we understand that we need God. But I think it's often the other side that we don't talk about. We don't know God's heart very well. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take you through a journey of of Psalm 103 and talk about how God views you. And and if you look in Psalm 103, we're not going to uh, look at verses 1 through 5. That is David talking personally to his God and and about personal things. But then he goes on in verse 6, he begins to widen the vision of what God sees and he begins to see how God's gracious and fatherly conduct applies towards us as sinful, perishing people. So I want to read if, uh, with, along here, and you can just follow along as I read, in verse, starting in verse 6. And I'll read down to verse 18. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his, paths, his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us as we look at this passage, that we'll get a greater understanding, not just of you, but of how you view us. Lord, I think oftentimes we as Christians, we become paralyzed in our sin. And because of our sin, we do not live victorious Christian lives. Because of our sin, we run from you and we hide. Because of our sin, we don't read your word as much as we should. And and because of our sin, we become ineffective servants. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see how you view us and understand through the eyes of David the incredible uh, love and compassion that you have for us. God, we thank you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I can't cover every word of this passage. It's a lengthy passage, but I wanted to give you kind of an overview of this passage to understand uh, God's view of us. And we have seven points. If you have your bulletin, you can see there seven points, but some of these I'll go through quickly to understand how God views us. First of all, I want you to notice that God loves to help the helpless. If you will look at verse 6 and 7, I'll read those again. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He may know his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. That phrase oppressed there is seen throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. And the idea of those oppressed are those who cannot help themselves. In the Old Testament, the word would especially mean those who were widows or orphans or foreigners or poor or in some way weak. And the idea we get from that is those are people who who have the inability to do anything to care for themselves. 
When we're tempted at times to take advantage of others because we're strong and they're weak, we need to remind ourselves of what God does. And God says this, that he has his eyes on the helpless and he loves to help those that are hurting and he moves in a way to to balance out the injustice of the world and care for those who can't care for themselves. And what David is declaring here is that uh, God does what he does, as it says in verse 6, it, he does what he does and he cares for the oppressed out of uh, what, what comes out of his righteousness. Because God is righteous, because God does what is right, therefore, and because God is just, therefore God cares for those that can't help themselves. Now how does that relate to us? Oftentimes we can't help ourselves. In fact, when it comes to the area of salvation, we can never help ourselves, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But God desires to help the helpless. In verse 7, he goes on, he says, He made known his ways to Moses. And the psalmist is declaring here that uh, he is proving this characteristic that God helped those because he did that for the Israelites. And he uses specifically Moses. And if you know the history of Israel, that there was a time when the people of Israel were in captivity, they were in slavery in Egypt. They were being oppressed and they were being uh, beaten if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were work slaves and they were, they were used by Egypt to, to build things and to uh, pro- progress the wealth of, of Egypt. And God came to them at a point when they could do nothing of their own. And God used the life of Moses. And what David is, is reminding the people of Israel here is that God has done that for them. And if we study, we see God has done that for us. So first of all, God helps, uh, loves to help the helpless. Secondly, we want to look at God shows, mercies to those, shows mercy to those who do not deserve it. Notice, if you will, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In this verse alone, there is, there is four attributes of God that I think are listed here that center around the idea of mercy. What is mercy? Because that's the first one listed there. He says, the Lord is merciful. What is mercy? Mercy is the idea that you deserve punishment, I deserve punishment, and yet God withholds the punishment from us. In, in a sense, he pardons us. He looks down and says, what you deserve is this, but what I am going to do is going to remove it from you. You know, we uh, oftentimes understand this, and uh, if you've ever been pulled over before, you know, and the police officer comes to the door and says, do you know what you did? No, I don't. You were going 15 miles over the speed limit. Oh, I'm sorry. I remember one time when I was in college, I was traveling, we were going to a church for for a Wednesday night in a service that we had, and and the, the girl that was driving was... Uh, the sweetest girl, one of the sweetest girls I've ever met. I mean, she was just a sweetheart. And she's driving, and we get pulled over, and the police officer comes over and says, do you know what you did? And she just on the spot starts bawling. And he's like, ma'am, do you know what you did? And she's like, no, 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 no. You know, and she's crying. And, and finally, he just was like, okay, <laughs> it's okay. I'm just going to give you a warning today. And she's still crying. Thank you. You know, and she's just crying. And uh, we drove away, and I, I, her name was Christy. I said, Christy, do you think maybe someone else should drive? Because by this point, she just, you know, can't even see. But that police officer showed mercy. She deserved it. 
but he withheld it. But what we're talking about here is the Lord is merciful to us. Then it goes on, and part of that mercy is it says he's gracious. This is the amazing thing about God, is God says, I'm going to withhold judgment, but beyond that, God says, I'm going to give to you stuff that you don't deserve. Not just that I'm going to take away the punishment, but I'm going to give you blessings, and I'm going to give you life, and I'm going to give you health. And it goes on and it says as a part of that God is slow to anger even though we continue to do things, even though we continue to take advantage of His mercy and take advantage of His grace, even though we do all that, the Bible says that God is slow to anger. He is patient. I don't know about you, but as a dad, I am horrible at that. But my Heavenly Father isn't. Even though I deserve it, even though He could step on me every single day and treat me as the sinner I am, He doesn't. Because David understood what we all need to understand is that God looks down and He doesn't look down as some uh, tyrant. He looks down as some almighty God that looks down but in love waits patiently for us to change. You know, yet so often we sit there and we think, but, but I'm a wicked person. God, please judge me. And God says, if you continue in this, there will come a time of judgment. But for now, I am holding back my anger. It goes on in part of that mercy. It says then, why does he do all that? He abounds in love. He loves us. And this, this theme of love is seen throughout this passage. And we'll talk about it more as we go along. But He loves us more than we can even imagine. If you'll notice in verse 8, He says the, the steadfast love. Verse 11, He talks about the steadfast love. Verse 17, He talks about steadfast love. And all of these imply a benevolence from God that requires no merit on the part of the receiver. It's not that we are worthy of God's mercy and grace and and patience and love. We are not. It is given to us because of the benevolence of God, even though you've done nothing to deserve it, and I've done nothing to deserve it. I love uh, in, in, in Charles Spurgeon's commentary on, the, on this passage in a book called The Treasury of David, he expands on this mercy, and he says, he says this, All the world tastes of His sparing mercy. Those who hear the gospel partake of His inviting mercy. The saints live by His saving mercy, are preserved by His upholding mercy, are cheered by His consoling mercy, and will enter heaven through His infinite and everlasting mercy. I like that. In that passage, in that little thing, He lists six kinds of mercy in one simple sentence. And that's the amazing mercy of God. That God is merciful to us. But thirdly, not only does God help the helpless and is merciful to those who do not deserve, but thirdly, God controls his wrath. We mentioned that, but then David expands on that in verses 9 and 10. He says, he will not always chide. That word chide means scold. He's not a parent who always is constantly scolding their child. Nor will he keep his anger forever. Notice verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Have you ever met a person who's always angry? Who's always upset about something? Who is always you know, down on people because they've done something? God is not like that. 
He is willing to end the quarrel with us and welcome us back home. And the real problem is not him. The real problem is, is that we want to continue to fight against God. And what God says is he says this, I will not always hold back, but for now I am. I'm not giving you what you deserve. And as, as he says in verse 10, I'm not dealing with you according to your sins. I'm not uh, uh, repaying you according to your iniquities. I am not doing that because I am holding back. And not only that, as we said, he's merciful and he's gracious and, and he gives to us. He cares for us even though we don't deserve it. Someone once said this, they said, when we forget to pray, he re- still remembers to feed us. When we forget to give thanks, he still gives us sleep. When we dwell in our sin, he sends the Holy Spirit to convict us. When we refuse to give, he keeps on giving. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we disappoint ourselves and others, he still calls us children. The amazing part about God is that he blesses those who don't even believe in him. He blesses those who who, who don't even care about him. If you've had an opportunity at some point to have a conversation with with an atheist, one of the greatest comments you can give to them is this, you may not believe in God, but yet he still provides for you. An unbeliever who cares nothing about God and might even mock God or curse God, but the mercy of God is instead of crushing him like an empty eggshell, instead of stepping on him and crushing him, the Lord feeds him, nourishes him, gives him health, love, life. It's the long-suffering of God that allows men, get this, it's the long-suffering of God that allows men to deny God. And why would God show such kindness to someone who is utterly dedicated to, to eradicating God's influence on the world? It's because God's not the least bit intimidated by someone trying to destroy him. And so in love, he waits. And the fact that God withholds punishment from his, evidence, from his enemies is evidence of his mercy. And as Romans says, God's kindness leads towards repentance. God controls his wrath. But on top of that, I I love this one, God forgives all our sins. Notice, if you will, at verse 11 and 12. And this is one uh, sentence here that he's, and so it's one thought. He says in verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him. And there's two aspects of this. First of all, there's this steadfast love, and he compares it to the heights of the heavens. Um, my, my family right now, we're going through a devotional book that I, I found um, called The Radical Book for Kids. And it's, it's really a great book. It talks about a lot about Scripture and facts about Scripture and and uh, there was something we were just reading together as a family the other day, and I, I was like, this fits perfectly with what we're talking about. So I want to read it to you. It says this, The, the Voyager 1 space probe is traveling into outer space at a speed of 38,000 miles per hour. To put this into perspective, passenger jets fly around 600 miles per hour. In other words, the speed of the space probe is 64 times faster than a jet. At space probe speed, you could travel from New York City to Los Angeles in 4 minutes and 40 seconds. Imagine that. 
At space probe speed, it would take a little over six hours to reach the moon. It would take about 52 days to reach Mars. It would take about four years, nine months to reach Saturn. Voyager 1 was launched in 1977, and now after traveling for 40 years, it is approaching the outer edge of our solar system. Let's not stop there. Do you know how long it would take for this probe to reach the closest star to our sun? Even at a blazing 38,000 miles per hour, it would take approximately 80,000 years to reach the next closest star. Pushing the boundaries of our mind even farther, do you realize that a journey across the Milky Way alone would take this space probe 26 billion years? And here's a crazier number than that. It is estimated that our universe has 200 billion galaxies. And our God who made all of that is the same God that Scripture tells us knows the precise number of hairs on your head. And so when God, God, through David, says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. We can't even fathom how high the heavens are. And God says, those I made, and those are just a glimpse of who I am. And, but here's the amazing part about that is, is, I love you. But then he goes on in, in the next verse, and he, he expands on that love, and he gives us a, um, a, a good illustration of that love by saying in verse 12, as far as... Uh, the east is from the west. So far he removes our transgressions from us. Let's consider the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Let's, let's decide that as a group we're going to go on a trip. Okay, We're going to leave from here and we're going to hop in all our vehicles, which should be a few, and we're going to head east. We're going to go east out this way and we're going to head down and keep going until we get to Boston, Massachusetts. Great city. We get to Boston and we hop in a plane and as a, as a church we fly in the plane and we fly until we come to Paris. We land in Paris and we get off the, uh, the plane in Paris and we hop on a train and we take a, uh, a train through Europe until we come to, to, to Budapest, Hungary. And in Budapest, Hungary, we hop on a bus and we travel on a bus until we get down to the, to the Black Sea. And on the Black Sea, we hop on a boat and, and we take that boat through the Black Sea and south and back over east a little bit to the Mediterranean Sea until we hit the Suez Canal. And we go through the Suez Canal and, and we hit the Indian Ocean. We take the Indian Ocean all the way to Australia. Australia, we decide to hitchhike across to Australia because there's no other way through the, bad, uh, the outback. And we get all the way to, uh, to Sydney and we hop on another plane and we fly to Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, we take another train until we get to Chicago. From Chicago, we get on a bus and we end up back here in South Bend. Now, what have we done? We've taken a long trip, by the way. But besides circumnavigating the entire globe, what have we proved? We have proved this. No matter how far east you will go, you will never find the west. And that is the point. Never the two shall meet. 
The farther east you go, the farther away you get from the west. And that, that is what, what God is saying in that passage. That is, that is the idea that David is trying to get across. He's saying that I am going to take your sins. The magnitude of God's love is this. That the, the good news of God's love is this, is that He forgives us. And when He forgives us, He removes our sins. He lifts them from us. He takes them away, as far away as He possibly can. And no matter how hard we search, no matter how hard we pursue after our sins, we will never find them because God has removed them. Isn't that an amazing thought? You know, we don't do that because we get up in the morning and we're reminded of our sin of the day before. And what God says is, I've already forgiven you. I've taken that sin and I've taken it as far away from you as possibly can. Stop dwelling in it. But Many times we wake up in the morning and we feel so distraught because the day before we failed. And God says, I've already dealt with it. I love you so much that I've already removed it, and my sins can never come back to haunt me again. The consequences might, but that sin itself can never come back to haunt me again. Even Satan can't bring it back. And that is what this passage is saying. God is saying, when, you, uh, when, when God forgives you because of his great love, he will never bring it back Again, you know, uh, how many times have I met with someone and they begin to talk about someone else and they begin to say how, why they're angry at that person and, and oftentimes it's, you know, they'll go back 10, 15 years of why they're angry at that person and I'll say, well, have you ever forgiven? Yeah, I've forgiven them, but I just keep bringing it up. Well, then you haven't forgiven them. Because what God says is when he forgives, they're gone. God forgives all our sin, but next I want you to notice number five is God understands our need for compassion. In verse 13, he goes on, he says, out of this love, he says, as the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I really never understood this verse completely until I had children of my own. I remember when my son was little, and uh, he loved, well, he still loves trains, but uh, when he was little, he loved toy um, trains. You know the wooden tracks that you can buy? And someone had given us wooden tracks, and so uh, he was probably one or two, and, and he would ask me to put together a track. And I remember, you know, I wanted to make the best possible track I could. And so it wasn't just enough to make a little circle. I would make these big tracks with hills, and I would use blocks to make these exciting hills, and I would make the perfect track that was, was, had the optimal speed as he would move around, and it would have the greatest usability for his trains. I would finish, and, and Micah would begin playing. And usually within the first few minutes, his train would derail, in the process of derailing, so would the entire track. And there lied a mass of wooden parts that I took 30 minutes to make and he destroyed in 30 seconds. And then he would look at me and say, Dad, can you build it again? No! But is that what I said? Maybe. <laughs> But most of the time, out of a heart of compassion, I looked and I said, okay. Why? Because I loved them. Still do. But I don't build them wooden tracks anymore. 
I loved him, and, I, and because of that, I wanted to show it. And as a father, I loved, and I still love to show compassion to my kids, but greater than that, God looks down and he sees our need for compassion, and he loves us, and we mess up, we break apart the tracks of life, and yet God says, I love you. And earthly fathers, however imperfect, point us upwards to a heavenly father. And when our earthly fathers have done their job well, it makes it easy for children to believe in their heavenly father because they understand the concept that God loves us and has compassion for us. And our children learn that we do not worship a God of stone or or empty idols or some deity that's far from us. We worship a God who loves us, knows our weaknesses, and yet still loves us anyway. And just like in the relationship with my son, you know, two weeks later when I'd come in and he would say, build me the track, I didn't say, oh, I remember last time. No, I would sit down and I would build it for him. And he would destroy it again. And the process went on and on. I was excited the day when he finally built it on his own because then he wouldn't destroy his own track. That was fun. But we see God's compassion for us. We see God understands that. Number six, God knows that we are dust. Look, if you will, again at verse 14. It says, for he knows our frame. Why does he know that we need compassion? Because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And then, and then David gives us an illustration of the fact that we are dust. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more, that it's gone. And here's a truth we all understand. This time of year, many of you love spring and you love going out and working in your yard. And, and uh, w- when we go outside, we see uh, right outside of our side door, we have a bush that's just, the leaves are just starting to come in and they're, and they're growing and the leaves grow and, and then there's flowers that are going to bloom with it. And, and, uh, but here's the reality is today's green leaves soon turn brown. It's an unchangeable law of nature that green leaves of the spring will end up as a pile in your yard in the fall. I grew up, as many of you know, in Connecticut, and um, when I was in high school, our our Christian school, we'd play other Christian schools and sports, and, and there wasn't a lot of other Christian schools in Connecticut, so oftentimes we would play teams in Massachusetts and uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, Maine, uh, Rhode Island, uh, sometimes down into New Jersey, but uh, I, I loved uh, going up to the, the schools we'd play in Vermont, New Hampshire, because I love the mountains. And I remember um, we would play this team up in, in northern, New Ham- uh, northern Vermont, excuse me, Burlington, Vermont, and, and we played them, and it happened to be the time when we were there. It was a beautiful time of year. It was the peak of fall foliage season. And to get to this, to this school, we had to travel through this country road. And as you're traveling through the country road, you could see leaves of every hue Im- imaginable. Scarlet, orange, pink, bright red, maroon, bronze, yellow, purple, and every possible shade of brown. And why do those leaves lose their green? Well, there's a scientific explanation, which I'm not going to give you. But the simple explanation is that the leaves are slowly dying, and their beauty comes from their death. And who remembers each of these leaves and who cares about them? Eventually, they'll be swept up, they'll be raked up, and they'll be burned or, or somewhere put in a pile and, and they'll finally they'll disintegrate and become soil again. 
No one names them or even thinks about them. And that's what the Bible tells us is the nature of us as human beings. In a similar way, the Bible says that your life here on earth is short. It's just a little bit and then, and then we're gone and, and no longer are we here. And, and, and God understands that about you and I. And He understands that we have sin and we have all these problems and we need help and we need compassion, but we're here just for a short period of time. I heard the other day about a woman, I don't know if any of you heard about this, a woman who, who just recently died just a couple weeks ago. She was 117 years old. She was born in 1899. As far as they know, she's the only one that was still alive who lived in three centuries. But the Bible tells us that in comparison to eternity, her life was just short. It was a vapor. And if life is all there is, if we're here today and we're gone tomorrow, if that's the end of the story, there's not much hope. But let me share something with you. If we have nothing else to be thankful for, here's something you can hang your hat on. Our hope is not in man or anything we can do. Our hope is in an everlasting, eternal God. And that's where we come to the final point in, in, in verse, verses 17 and 18. God offers us eternity with him. And it says in verse 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. There is absolutely nothing that you can do about your human frailty. We come uh, from God stamped, fragile, handle with care. We're dust. We make a big scene and then not long after that we disappear. And we may try as much as we possibly can to cancel our, our humanity, but nothing can change that. Vitamins and exercise and clean living may slow down the process. Positive thinking may improve your mood, but for all of us, the end is the same. Ashes to ashes, the Bible says, dust to dust. But Psalm 103 offers us one strong element of comfort that lifts us above this fleeting nature of life. And it is in verse 17, and it starts with the word, but. And that little conjunction changes everything. As we go through this passage, we see over and over again God talking about how, how we are oppressed and needy people, how we are uh, going to face the wrath of God one day, how we, God is, is, it loves us and forgives us and need, we need compassion, but ultimately we're frail human beings. But, and that one little word, that one little but, stands as a line between this life and the next, and it gives us hope. It points to God's everlasting love. Someone once said that, that um, life without Christ is a hopeless end, but life with Christ is an endless hope. In this transient and passing world where everything fades away, we have the promise that we're linked to a future even after we're gone because of the faithfulness of God. And this is His mercy. What is Psalm 103 telling us? We are richer than we think. We're more blessed than we can imagine. And we have more than we can realize. But where is this mercy found? Where is this mercy that God speaks of? Where is this everlasting love found? It's found in the cross. It's found in, in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And God says to us, He knows that we're weak, and He knows that we're frail, and He knows that we are dusty children, and we're going to return to dust, but He knows that He loves us anyway. But I want you to notice one last thing before we close. Look, if you will, at three places in this passage. Look at verse uh, 11. At the end of verse 11, the last two words, He says, fear Him. End of verse uh, 13, he says, the last four words, those who fear him. At the end of verse 17, those who fear him. God knows us, and he knows this about us, that we are frail and that we are weak. And he knows that we are in and of ourselves are nothing, but what does he tell us in this passage? He says, all these things that he talks about, this steadfast love, this forgiveness, this hope in Jesus Christ, all comes upon those who are fear him. What does that phrase mean? That means the idea of being awe of him. You know, as I said, when I was in college and had to list all the things I knew about God, what I came to the realization of was, is I didn't know enough about God. And so because I didn't know enough about God, I did not stand in awe of him. It's not fear in the sense of, uh, of we say, oh man, I am so wicked and so God is going to destroy me. It is fear in the sense of God is so powerful that He can destroy me, yet He chooses to offer me mercy. And that is what brings us awe. And if you're here this morning and you do not have a fear of God, you do not have an understanding that you are a sinner and you deserve uh, punishment, you deserve destruction, yet God in His mercy offered you salvation. If you do not understand that, you cannot fear God. I challenge you, if you are, have never come to that point where you understand those facts, that you come today and make that right with God. Because the, the, the opposite side of this is true, that those who do not fear Him, those who do not understand what God has done for us, will face the incredible wrath of God. Maybe not today because He's patient. Maybe not uh, anytime soon, but it will come. And God's Word tells us that. So my question is for you, do you truly understand what God thinks about you and what are you doing about it? Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your love and compassion. We're thankful for forgiveness. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful that we can stand in awe of you, not because of anything we have done, but because of who you are. And God, I pray that you'll help us, even as we go into a time of communion, that we will, we will dwell on the magnificent gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us to leave our sins at your feet and understand that you have removed them from us. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.